there is no such thing as Abrahamic religion. On two points. Number one, if you think Abrahamic religion is anything like Judaism, Abraham didn't keep kosher. He didn't have Shabbat. He didn't have anything we associate with Judaism today, unless you go to Chabad and then they'll tell you that he was visited by an angel and they taught him the whole Torah backwards and forwards and he was, he was as kosher as the greatest kosher saint of all time. But we know that that's not what happens. There's no covenant yet. There's no revelation. There's no Mount Sinai. So that what is Abrahamic religion? We say, well, what was his religion? You know, he welcomed the stranger and he provided hospitality. And you have this incredibly rich section of the Torah that we talked about for probably a year, which is everything from Hagar getting thrown out and the binding of Isaac and the almost this and them going to Egypt and uh, Sarah getting put in the harem and then the wars that Abraham fights to make money and he's a mercenary and you have Sodom and Gomorrah. I mean, you have all this stuff basically in one and a half weeks. And, but his religion was he welcomed strangers. So like that's it's a cop-out. So what was his religion? A lot of it comes down to the translation of one line in Genesis. And it's only, if I remember, five words long in Hebrew. And it basically says, and God, he-emin. it's the word for a belief, the same root as the word for emet, which means truth. The same root as amen, usually translated believe, but before you translate believe, does it really mean believe? Because he did something about belief. It's in a particular conjugation that he feel, because he-emin, he made him believe, he extra believed, he caused him to believe, he caused himself to believe, whatever, we're not, what, you have questions about the grammar of it, the root is to believe, because he believed something or, or he did something, Ba Adonai, like through it, in it, with it, just it, because he, something belief, something it, he accounted it to him, he reckoned it as tzedakah, the word tzedakah, which means righteousness. So it's five words. Because he did something with belief in God, he accounted it for him or to him as tzedakah, as a righteous act or righteousness. The Eitz Chaim translation is a recent translation, and it's a really good translation because they're trying to deal, as everything, even Art Scroll, when it translates, it's trying to deal with getting you the meaning and not just the words. But the bottom line is the way it was understood by the church fathers and the way it then became influential in Christianity, then the way it was translated in King James, and then the way it's even translated in 20th century translations by Christians is... Because Abraham believed in God, God considered him righteous, or God... Uh, then in one of the most common Christian translations of the 20th century, one I just took off of the shelf in the uh, library, it says, because Abraham believed in God, God considered that true religion. Translates Sadaqah, true religion. Now, and then, okay, so that's Christianity. I'll tell you the, the one line about that. But then the one line about Islam is the way it's, it's translated in the Quran is because Abraham submitted to God. The word Islam means submission. And the Quran is all about um, true religion is submission to God. So we have belief in God, submission to God. And then what do we do in Jewish? 
So is there an Abrahamic religion? And the answer I'm giving you is, well, there's no religion in the Torah attributed to him. He does one basic mitzvah. I mean, he does the, the, the nice mitzvah of welcoming strangers. But his, tradition, his religious mitzvah, he only has, it seems, one. Circumcision. Circumcision. And that comes at the end of his life, which that's a big issue for the rabbis, that he only does circumcision at the end of the Abraham stories. Like, he couldn't have done it sooner? So what is his religion? The Christians say by and large, and it's a big part of their theology. And the religion is proper belief in the proper God, belief in the proper system. It's because he had proper faith in the right God. He had the proper belief, the faith is belief in the correct God system. It's having correct theology. That's religion. True religion is having the correct theology. That's the Christian interpretation of that. The Muslim interpretation says submission. The Jewish interpretation is that the word faithfulness is a relationship word. It is not a philosophy word. The closest we get to trying to make it sound Christian is, I have faith in Krista. So it's not a word where you, have, you say, I have faith in heaven. I have faith in the fact that. You can't say that. I have faith, you know, and, but that's the way the Christians are. I have faith in the fact that Jesus died for my sins. I have faith in the fact that the waters parted and formed walls that the Israelites went through. I have faith in the fact that Abraham really existed or Abraham didn't really exist. We have been conditioned by the Christian view to say that faith is faith in a fact. And that they're saying that Moses got the facts right. He had faith in the Father. He knew he had the first part of the th proper theology. He didn't get the Son and the Holy Ghost yet. But he knew about the Father. And he was only, you know, so he had the proper belief system, the fact that there is the Father in heaven. The Jewish thing says you can't have faith in a fact. You can only have a relationship with another person. So faith is like faithfulness. I won't say, um, so if we change the word faith just to make it more Jewishy, so if I, yeah, I could say, like, I have faith in Krista, or I could say, you know, um, I have a faithfulness to Krista. I will be a good friend, right? So we have faithfulness in our relationship. And then I say, do you want to have, like, faithfulness in me? Then that forms covenant. And that means that whatever happens, you'll be there for me. You know, that's like foxhole stuff. You know what I mean? I'll cover you and you cover me. Do you have my back? Do you have your back? That is emunah, right? It's not that I believe that if trouble comes, you will come to my aid or something. It's not, don't put it in fact language. Just put it in person language, faithfulness. Um, and, and you can have ups and downs in faithfulness. So getting to the bottom line, the time changes it, and I think it's correct to do so, to trust. It's trying to find an English word that won't sound Christian-y. And so it says, um, and, or, and won't sound Muslim, which would be, and Abraham did what God said. Abraham was obedient to God. And so God said, you're my man. I, so it says that it, so Abraham trusted God. And, and that is a good, I think, translation. Um, and it gets away from belief language and faith language. And, but you can ask it, why that happened? So there really are three different Abrahamic religions. And they really don't have anything to do with Abraham. It's not Judaism as we know it, right? It is... It, and then you have the Islam, which is their interpretation of a word. You have Christianity, which is their interpretation of a word. And you have us, which is this kind of trust, faithfulness. And I have a question for you, which is, what, what do you think most Jews actually 
of those four options or whatever, what do you think most Jews actually think Jewish faith is or Abraham's religion is? I would argue it's the Christian view. You have Abraham bind Isaac up. Is there any other situation where a father sacrifices his son in ancient Near East? Like, is that a big famous story? Well, there is. There are two. One is irrelevant, which is there was a cult of child sacrifice, which the Bible is very much against. And it wasn't like the most major thing, but it was a thing. There was a cult of child sacrifice in the ancient Near East. Uh, it was called the Molech um, cult. And it is in the ancient Near East. And they were very much against the Molech cult. So we were like, you don't do... And they always did burning. There was no sacrifice. You, um, you, bur- you immolated. Um, and Jeremiah talks about it. The immolation of a son or daughter to Molech seems to be used to affect a kind of magical change. So, for example, to win a battle, the, uh, you know, a king would sacrifice or someone would sacrifice a child or their child in order to cause them to win the battle. So this motif, let's call it, of child sacrifice is something that the Bible clearly disapproves of and was based on something real. But the fact that the Bible is saying we don't want sacrifice like that, it's not the only motif that actually is relevant here. And people who see it as the only motif that's relevant see the non-sacrifice of Isaac as basically God saying something like, you know how people, some people kill their kids um, and they think God wants that? Well, we don't. So God says, you know, would you do it? But of course, I don't want that. It's a way of saying, don't ever do what they do with Molech. But that simplistic view is missing the way another motif plays into this, namely the motif of a parent who not immolates their child, but a parent who is willing to risk, willing to offer um, the child to potential danger for a greater good that is long-term. And that is something that deserves examination. There is something, which is the chief god of the Canaanite pantheon. His name is El. Canaan is where we lived. And we hate Baal, who's, who's one of the... Their Canaanites have a lot of gods. We hate Baal, we hate Asherah, we hate the Bibles against them, the Torah's against them, don't you do. Don't, don't worship Baal. Don't you do Asherah. But we don't talk a lot about El. El was their father. So the father god was El, and our god's also called El. Mm-hmm. Right? El for Elohim, and, El, and, and the capital of the northern kingdom in Canaan, the northern tribes of Ephraim, or what used to be called Israel, the capital was Beth-El, which is why synagogues today are still called Beth-El, House of El. Mm-hmm. It's a little bit like going to an interfaith gathering today where the priest says, my religion is Father, Son, Holy Spirit, And then, like, the Jewish people are like, the rabbi is going to come up here and say, our God is just the Father. And the question is, is that even accurate? So on the one hand, I don't think that's accurate, because what they think the Father is is not really what I think the Father is. But I would tell you that a whole lot of Jews would go in that room and say, wow, you've got this L, Father God, who's really nice, and who actually at one point has to give up one of his children. Like, children of L could be called B'nai, Elim, children of El who are also gods, 
Who is like these, the gods of the pantheon? We have this idea that God is above the other gods. But we're not supposed to have uh, a sense that God is the greatest or the highest above other gods. I thought there was only one God. But, and certainly, we're not supposed to have anything like B'nai Elim, the children of the gods. But then, doesn't this sound familiar from the Friday night service? Right before Lachadodi, we sing Psalm 29. We also sing it again on Saturday morning when we take out the Torah and parade it around the sanctuary. So Psalm 29 begins with Adonai, acclaim Adonai, B'nai Elim. Now, in the, one of the Siddurs we have, it's translated exalted creatures, but the actual B'nai Elim sure sounds a lot like the sons, the children of El. And so we have it actually, this strain in the tradition, perhaps seeing our god El as the highest of the gods, or maybe in a sense, eventually, it's a, it, 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 it's a form of saying he's the only God, but maybe originally there was some latitude in that. Wait a second, I thought there was only one God. Now, in a lot of the Torah, there is only one God, and they don't like Micha They don't like that prayer. But there's a part of the, there are the inter, I would call them the ancient ecumenical interfaith people in the Torah who are like, no, it's like when Christians say Father, Son, Holy Ghost, and we share the Father, and they're comfortable saying, you know what, I don't know about those other gods, but I like the fact that we agree. We, we, me, who is like El, the, 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 the father of the other, he's the top one among the gods. So, so what I'm saying is there are, two, there are all kinds of strains in the Torah. And one is the kind of Rav Nadav one, which is, no way, I don't like this El business, because it makes it sound like the Canaanite God and our God are the same one. And I, it, boo. And there are a lot of Torah authors and streams in here that don't like that, like me don't like that. But there's also some who are a little bit like, you know, we do a Christmas tree, but we call it a Hanukkah bush. And they're the ones who are like, you know those Canaanite locals that we get along with? They've got El, the father of all the gods, we got El, the only God. It's the same thing. It sounds the same thing. So Micha Mocha, our El, but he's still better than the B'nai Elim, the children of El. Um, but there's a story about El and his Canaanite where El gives up his son and eventually gets the son back, which follows the pattern of the Akedah story where Abraham's willing to give up his son but gets him back. And so there are two streams. There's in, uh, and now I'm going back to another thing and we'll be done. If you want to ask about the Akedah, there are two ancient Near Eastern streams. One is you burn a child to death, and there's nothing like that in okay, or that's abhorrent. And it wasn't just abhorrent to us. There were others who found it abhorrent. But don't ignore that there's this other stream of a motif, um, an archetype, a pattern, where a, a parent, even the godparent, is willing to give up protecting a child in the hopes of having the child restored, but not counting on it. As my father used to say every Rosh Hashanah day two, um, when we read the Akedah, it's like allowing a child to be conscripted into the army. And anyone who was at the men's event, um, that's what he was talking about. The head of the Times of Israel was the keynote speaker at the men's event on Thursday. We had 800 men listening. He said, there's nothing quite like living in Israel where you have to let your child be conscripted into the army. 
it's this moment of saying, I hope they're restored to me, but I need to let them go for the greater good. And in a lot of ways, the Akedah is about that, and that's a pattern that even was in Canaanite religion that was out there. This, and, and that is a human archetype, a human archetype of when it is that you let your child go instead of protecting them for the greater good. And now I zoom back to the Abrahamic religion thing one more time. What does it mean to trust in God? What are we talking about? You, okay, Rabbi, you convinced me that we view it through the Christian lens, and that's wrong, and the Islam one is highly problematic, and I don't want to be discriminatory or prejudiced, but let's just say it's highly problematic, about that it's all about obedience and submission to whatever God says, and that can lead to very horrible things. So what is this trust that you're talking about? And what, is the, what, is the true, what do you think the true Abrahamic faith is? What, or religion, if there is one? And I would say that it is the, the trust in God, let's say, depending on what you think God is, for the future. And that everything about the Abrahamic covenant, it's all, as scholars call, promissory, which is just a fancy word for saying it's all about the future. Abraham's covenant is not like, if you do this, you will get to live in the promised land. If you keep my covenant, you will get wine and grain and oil in its proper season. It's all, if you do this, way, way after your lifetime is over and the lifetime of your children and your grandchildren and way beyond all of that, there will come a day when your sacrifices and what you do will make a difference to the world and there will be an Israel, there will be a Judaism, there will, there will be something. And you got to get, so that his great faith, his religion, is that in a way, don't live for the present moment. And you may have to give up a lot with the trust that the future will work out. And then even the pattern of God doing this is listed in Torah. There's a, I can't remember if it, if, I think it's in Numbers, where God says, my children, I had to let them go into Egypt and be enslaved for generations of torture and death so that they could come out and get a land of Israel. So God refers to us as his children, that he had to kind of let us go and suffer because he, God, in a way, it was a covenant of the future, that the future would work out. And I was telling the group yesterday, and I think I got a good response from some, that like, that's, that's a really deep faith that we don't talk about enough. We get so caught up in the kind of like, do you believe in God? Do you not believe in God? Do you believe in heaven? Do you not believe in heaven? Do you think God's up there deciding whether we live or die this year in Rosh Hashanah? Do you not believe God is up there? And it's all this kind of picture of, do you have the right beliefs? And do you have faith in those beliefs? Where the real Abrahamic faith was a trust that the future is going to work out, and it was the faith of the prophets. The prophets had a crappy they were all in exile and at post-war. And their whole faith also was like going back to, we will not forever be slaughtered without a homeland. Like it, you have to make, you have to make sacrifices now. Like don't assimilate into Persia. Don't assimilate into Babylonia. Don't assimilate into Assyria. Don't give up. Like you got to make sacrifices now because there will be a future restoration of Israel. There will be a future. And I feel that way, of course. And I think many of us do about the environment, about America, about Israel, about Judaism in a time of assimilation. You know, like, what does it mean to, that we have two faiths. We have Jewish religion, let's say Mosaic, Moses religion. But we also, like, that Abrahamic covenant, when we get it right, 
may speak to us even more than the Moses covenant, which is how do we, how do we go through our lives with the idea that we could lose everything? Because Abraham's prepared to lose everything. God lost a lot um, with putting his children in slavery, you could say, with the hope that like, those sacrifices will be redeemed. Those what we call in military terms, their sacrifices will not be in vain. You know, when someone dies in Vietnam, you have to be able to say, not we won. You, it, and, and what people did with Vietnam was cruel because what they thought was their, their sacrifices are only redeemed if we win. It's not about winning and losing. It's about the future being the right future. So the future that they fought for, um, their sacrifices make for a better future. If winning makes for a worse future or needless sacrifice, that's exactly what God hates. The difference between a contract and a covenant is a contract is usually clearly in the present, right? You give me that, I give you this, and then we have like a 12-month period of you can return it in 12 months or not return it at all. But it's like it doesn't usually have a huge delay. Like someday you will, you know, fix my roof. Um, but I'll give you the money now. Like, like it's not, so contracts normally try to be very specific about what is owed in the present. But covenants allow, it tries to establish the parameters of trust for two parties that could change and in which circumstances can change. So a good example of a covenant is marriage. Because like what you're really promising is that you're trying to figure out what you're promising. Am I promising anything? You know, like, what, what does it mean to enter into a situation where both people are going to change and your circumstances are going to change? And so that's why it's a covenant and you're trying to... Under and that's not so easy, what even the covenant of marriage is. And I'm like, well, then how do you establish parameters where you don't know what the circumstances will be and you don't know what, how the two parties will change over time or the world that they live in is going to change? And one of the parameters is communication, which is we got to be able to talk honestly, which is often disagreements and it's often painful because it often feels like you're accusing the other person which is why a lot of people don't communicate in marriage because you know it's like I don't it doesn't it doesn't feel right to tell my spouse they're letting me down or I feel like they're letting me down you know what I mean but then that's what you have to do so it's like the relationship we have with God has to be this arguing negotiation honesty um, you know and certainly in Judaism doubt but it's it, it, it's so weird because like when Donna said it just is it's not about, God, are you there, right? And I'm not a big fan of the books that reinforce this idea of like, hello, God, it's me, Martha, are you there? Or, hi, you know, my name is Moisha, I live in Auschwitz, God, are you there? Like, to me, they're all already buying in to a kind of Christian paradigm. And, but we do, because, I mean, we, we've lived in Christian cultures. I mean, it's doesn't, not surprising that we would have imbued some of their ways of speech. And then that's our ways of thinking. Whereas it's not, got, in a way, when you, like, it's not an issue where I believe Lynn exists, right? Lynn just is. We're in covenant. And when Donna says, like, there's a lot of power in God just is. And we've talked, you know what I mean? It's not, well, you know, God, you know, like, do I believe that God is? Like, you can believe whatever you want, but God is. Like, and then I've said before that, I mean, like, you know, God doesn't care whether you believe in him or not. Like, that's another thing. Christianity, it's all about do you believe that God exists? You know what I mean? Like, in Judaism, God doesn't believe whether you think God exists or not. God does get angry at your idolatry. 
right? So when you, it's a little bit like a marriage. Mm -hmm. Like in other words, it's not so much whether I exist, it's whether you cheat. You know what I mean? So don't make it about me. Like, so like that's something where it's like, whoa, hey, I, you're cheating on me with idolatry. So, you know, people walk around, I'm an atheist. I'm, I mean, I, if I, I mean, literally, I'm going to lose my lunch next time I have to have one of these conversations. And I mean, I really have to have them. I was even talking about the speech I'm going to give on this topic and, you know, ended up being a lunch where you just have to hear people talk about, well, I'm an agnostic and I'm, I'm a this, I'm an atheist and I have questions. And I'm like, like, I don't care. You know what I mean? Like, um, because it's like the idea that it's all about, like, that, that the main thing about religion is whether you believe in God or not. It's ignoring the fact that, to me, I mean, everyone believes, like, God, everyone has a relate. How, how do we put it? Every, in Judaism, the Jewish way to put it is this. Everyone has a relationship with God, regardless of whether you think you have one or not. And, and this is not a converting people. This is not one of those tricky, like, I'm knocking on your door, and you really are a Mormon, you just didn't realize it. Or you're really a Seventh-day Adventist, you just didn't know, right? It's not, it's not a trick. It's that, you know, the way you conduct yourself in life, and where your values are, and how you make decisions, and how you face ad uh, adversity, and how you deal with making decisions in your life when you don't have enough information to have a proper answer one way or another, all these things... It doesn't matter whether you call yourself an existentialist, an agnostic, a theist, or whatever. You have a relationship with God because that's what that means. You know, it, that's, it, it means to have a relationship with the universe. To say, like, and again, I've, I guess that's the easiest way to put it. It is as absurd for me to hear people say, well, the big issue is whether I believe in God or not. To me, it's like saying I believe in the universe or not. The universe doesn't care whether you believe in the universe or not. You have a relationship with the universe nonetheless, right? So that, you know, let's say Saul came up to me and said, well, I'm really an atheist and blah, blah, let's have a conversation. I would switch it to, Saul, how do you handle it when good people get sick, right? And then if it's like, well, I don't handle it like you, Rabbi, because I'm not a theist. It's like, don't assume you know what I think and don't assume you know how I manage those situations, how I negotiate, how I deal with my covenantal relationship with life. So let's change the word from God to universe or to life. I don't believe in life. Um, really? Okay. Looks like to me, like you, by your actions and the way you think, we're, we're really dealing with the same issue, which is how you live. You know, how do you do it? So, so it, can you imagine to say, well, we're going to have a conversation about Abrahamic faith, about whether you believe in the Father, the Son, the Holy Ghost, and I believe in the Father, or you don't believe anything. Is it the same? Is it different? We should be having a conversation, which is, um, how do you believe about sending our children into war without knowing where our society is going? Or do you just not do that? Do you say, I'm going to move to Canada, right? Oh, you're from Canada. Okay, forget <laughs> it. I'll just give an example. You moved here. I'll move to, I'll, 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 you know. But you know what I mean? That's, then you're talking about how you deal with your understanding of your relationship with, with, with your country, with the future. That's the faith. I mean, the faith is about sacrifice and future. Um, as I pointed out yesterday, though, for the women in the room, um, the women don't accept that version of Abrahamic faith. And the beautiful thing in the Torah is um, every time, it seems like every time someone's going to say, um, well, you know what, we have to make it, we have to, we have to give up something right now, like life or, you know, the war or conscription with the hope that they're restored. Again, it's not really that you want them sacrificed. It's the ability to live in Israel and let your child go into the Israeli army. And then you're you're hoping that I have to do this because it's for the greater good. And I really believe that. It's for a future. But I hope that they come back. And a lot of times in, in these archetypes, they do come back. A lot of times they come back different, but they come back. Um, that's, so, um, but then the women are often like, 
yeah, I don't believe that. I'm going to I'm going to go to Canada. So the so the, the the women are often that's why Abraham can't really tell Sarah because Sarah would have grabbed Isaac in a chokehold and and went and go hid in a cabin somewhere. <laughs> and um and it happens all of the time. The women um, consistently have a view which is look, um who did Jacob who did uh, Isaac want to appoint head of the tribe? Esau. What did Rebe what did Rebecca do? Dressed up to, I do not accept that. In other words, like, well, you know, I know Esau may be like not the smartest, not not the sharpest knife in the drawer, but it'll all work out in the end. Rebecca's like, I don't accept that. I think I'm going to fool my husband and dress up my son and switch it because I really have a need, not about the future, but about the now. And this one needs to be the head of the tribe, right? And so the women, uh, um, the women are very much, and in the Haftarah we read yesterday about the Shunammite woman and Elisha. I mean, she's like, yeah, you know what? My son who's dying, I want him revived now. I don't want him restored in the future for the betterment of society. I want to get that prophet, that weird prophet, and get him here and get him to revive him from the dead or to do resuscitation or whatever it is and I am going to make I'm going to save that life now so it's and and basically the way, the way I think the, the tradition understands this is that we have to have both in us these are two sides of God and they both have to be in us our absolute you know horror of the potential of sacrifice for a better future and to say no 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 I'm hitting the streets now I don't know this president needs to be impeached I mean the kind of like none of this, like, it's about faith in the future, and we have to make, whatever. I mean, like, you have to have both sides in you, which is, um, I will not accept no for an answer. Now. I have to save life now. And the other side, which which is the letting go and the hope for restoration, because it's a covenant about the future. Um, because without that faith in the future, or without the trust in the future, without, it, it, and remember, one of, in a way, God's secret names is the future. So, like, one of the things I like to play with, like, it doesn't matter whether you believe in the universe or not, you have a relationship with the universe, is why don't you replace the word faith in God or trust in God as another one of God's names, which is the future, the God of Adon Olam. Adon Olam is master of time, master of the future. And, like, the rabbis understand it, or especially the Kabbalists, as this... The, so, so what if you said that? It's faith in the future. I, that's not a bad translation. For that line, I'd rather so. I'd rather say Abrahamic faith, in my opinion, is a trust in the future, and um, willing to give up sacrifice now, and also to as he goes lech lecha, which is that I'm willing to embrace something that looks very risky or whatever because I think it's necessary for the future, um, and and living at home with my dad is not going to accomplish that. Um, so lech lecha. So you see how the Abrahamic stories start to go together. The negotiation. The leaving home, the stories themselves, um, and then and then the future. We all know that you don't have to be religious to be righteous, yeah. and we also know that there are people. And in the Talmud, a lot of times they're outside of the group of the rabbis. Mm -hmm. They are Honi Ham Agal. They're the crazy guy who lives in a cave, um, or the crazy guy who lives in the shack outside the village. Really, and often they have no education, and then they'll like wander into the Beit Midrash where the rabbis are like writing the Talmud, and they'll say something. Everyone's like whoa, there are people that seem to get it right, like about their values and about like the universe where it's going. And it's not because a little birdie whispered in their ear. It's that, you know, they just live that way. And I think Abraham, like he had, like he clearly was chosen for a reason. It, it, it's not like anyone could have been chosen. He, he was a natural. 
He had a natural gift, but it's not because of his education, and it's not because of how he was raised. So he was the right person for that. You know, and I'm, I'm going to mention John, General Kelly, um, only because in the Rosh Hashanah sermon, obviously I started with the mythology of the Sons of the Confederacy, which was created in the 20th century to promote the idea that the Civil War was about states' rights and wasn't really about slavery. And he repeated that in his press conference, uh, General Kelly, chief of staff of, of our president, where he said, you know, you know, most of the people uh, in the South, the, the, you know, the vast majority of people in the South did believe slavery was right. He forgot to include the African-Americans. Forty percent of the South was slaves. If you counted them, then the overwhelming majority of the South of Americans were against slavery. <laughs> but he forgot that. And then he repeated that idea that it wasn't really about slavery. It was partially about slavery, but it was really about two different systems that both believed they were right and they didn't compromise. And and, and that's abhorrent. I mean, it's also false. And and it also, it, 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 it sullies the Union soldiers who died in that war that basically were dying not to conquer the South, as if it was some kind of like war between two countries. They were basically fighting to end slavery. Many, and maybe some of them didn't even believe in it. Maybe some of them even believed that slavery was okay. But they were conscripted and they went because Lincoln said, you have to go, we're ending slavery. This country can't have slavery in it. And he had other, some other reasons, but that was the main reason. And they died for that. So to say, well, it was really about states, like as if it was a power struggle. Yeah. It, it, that, that's not really fair. But... And so, like, one thing that I argue, and then Sarah Huckabee Sanders, she made a comment in a press conference about the fact that, well, you have to understand that back then they believed slavery, many people believed slavery was okay. And one of the things that you mentioned, Jerry, although you may be like, what's he talking about, is that I pointed out here that part of what Abrahamic faith means to me and religion means to me is that you don't play that game, that back then people thought something was okay and that made it okay. Like, oh, back then they thought that burning their children was okay. So, like, it was okay. I'm, we're not relativists like that. There were a lot of people in the South who thought slavery was wrong, and they lived in a society in which people were enslaved. There were a lot of people who may have even suspected that was wrong and said it was right and said they believed it was right because they liked owning slaves and they liked the money. You know what I mean? And they liked not having to do the work. And they liked inheriting money and getting to be a southern plantation Skion, a child, you know, and go to the prep schools and all that stuff. And Abraham was a guy who seemed to know right from wrong. And part of the Abrahamic faith that all of us have to have is to be in the right place, regardless of the mitzvahs. You know what I mean? To be in the right place about right and wrong. And I think that's a big part of our religion. Like, so part of my religion is kashrut and Shabbos and tefillah and all those things. And part of it is to know when I was seven years old or eight years old that read a story about someone who does live in a cabin, who grows their own vegetables and can live off of the land, that like, that sounds right to me, rather than let us burn down the rainforest so we can eat some hamburgers and then let it erode. I mean, like, you know, we, I mean, and, 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 like you learn things along the way. And some people are like, no, it's perfectly fine. Let's uphold the corporate system of rainforest destruction and meat production or whatever. You know, and there's some of us who are like, no, my seventh grade history teacher had a big influence on me. Or I saw that documentary and it changed my mind about human trafficking. You know, rather than, oh, come on, human trafficking is overrated. Let's all just go to the Super Bowl and get laid. So, like, um, you know, I mean, no, really. I mean, like, and, you know, so, like, in other words, I actually think that beyond the meets vote, there is a realm of religion and spirituality that is, in a way, natural. It's about figuring out your moral sensibility 
And when you get the signals to like filter them up, be like, this slavery thing that I'm growing up with in Virginia in 1850, this doesn't seem right. And I know dad's saying, shut the hell up. And everyone's saying, shut the hell up. And do you want to inherit or do you not want to inherit? Do you want to be the head of the plantation? Should I give it to your brother? Um, you know, like there were those who paid attention and there were those who different. And, and to say that whatever you grow up with is just what the truth is, is exactly not what happened to Abraham, who was like, I grew up with this. This doesn't feel right. And God's saying, go forth, you know, because you're about the future. Anyway, I, I feel like that's an important part of what we do. And religion is not just obedience to the mitzvahs. We, we, you know, like one of the things I was doing with the kids, and they asked to do it. I give them, multiple, when I do the Hebrew school, I ask them to pick top. I give them choice of topics. Talk about death. They usually don't want to talk about that. And other kinds of things, right? Circumcision, no. Um, so, but I talked, so I asked them what they want to talk about. I can't remember what's written on here. But I asked them like sixth, seventh grade, what are, you, what are you doing in social studies? Oh, you know, we were talking about Marxism or capitalism, blah, blah, blah. So we talked about the basic idea, and I'll limit it to this without giving you the lecture. Do you think society can be better than it is? Do you think there could be a better society? Um, do you think society could really work better? And you can tell me I'm over-exaggerating on this, but I was surprised by what came back. So one of the things I did was I brought up the word utopia. I said there are kind of two views, more or three views. I said one view is life is Hobbes or whatever. Life is tough. Society is tough. You just try to do it the best you can. Kind of. There's always going to be, there's always going to be a lot of injustice, inequality, problems. Um, maybe we have incremental improvement. Then there's the kind of utopian idealism, which very much affected Christianity because um, Paul probably spent time in an Essene community or, or a utopian community and had the idea of like the perfect city on the hill that's going to be or whatever. Um, Jesus kind of like if only everyone just shared, he was very communistic, if only everyone just gave, you know, everyone who was, it's like give away your shirt, give away your money. Like if you could actually bring, channel the Holy Spirit, like things would sort of transform into a, like a utopian society. It was, and that in the way that was taken up by Paul later. So you can make a perfect society. And then the Jewish view is in between, like it usually is, which is society can be a whole lot better than it is. And it's, that's not just like an, and that's a key part of our faith. Like it's a key part of Abraham. I was thinking when you were talking, which is, cause that's really like what you said that like, he's this chain, this, this, this thing that started, he was just a man. But like the idea was, he was a great person for starting the idea. Eventually, like he made a tribe, he made a shepherd tribe and then it grew and then he passed it on. But like this, there can be a better society. And of course, his no land ownership, um, possessions are, you know, we talked about before, you don't want possessions because you have to carry them. You really just want a simple life of hospitality, a, a big tent that you can well, and, and you want to be able to take care of as many people as possible. Anyone who's an orphan or a widow or something else, you want to be like, you can be one of my shepherds. You want a big enough flock that you can bring more and more people on, very much like the Old West, that the big ranches would take on cowboys that people who were like orphans and poor and almost homeless could make their way out west and hire themselves on a cowboys. They got almost no pocket money, but they got a bunkhouse to sleep in and they were got a horse to ride. And it's like, okay, tomorrow we go out. We, we got to move the whole herd from here to here. And as long as you show up and you get up on time and you don't fight and not too much gambling, we're good. And like He's like, I'll employ a lot of shepherds, you know, as many as you can. And he, 
it was all about leading to like a better place. The thing that surprised me about the kids, and this is what I'll tell you, is that they quoted a lot of these books to me, like The Giver, um, which is very popular reading among young people, which basically takes the view that when you try to make a better society, it's, it's all a sham. Like, um, that it, it's sort of anti-utopian, but it's basically the idea that, um, I think they're very skeptical in a lot of ways about the fact that there could be a society where there's less inequality or less homeless or fewer poor. The Torah, by the way, says there will always be poor. It just says your goal is to decrease that number <laughs> as much as you can. And that they basically say, there are, since we don't control death, and you never know who's going to die and leave the family. Um, or when there's also illness, you never know where someone will no longer be able to work in the family. And you also, there are vicissitudes of business that some people will be like, guess what? Everyone wants to eat burritos. And guess what? No one wants a veggie burger or whatever it is. Like there will be businesses, there'll be crops that you invest in a crop and you get, don't get the rain. So the Torah is very aware, it says, that there will always be people who are on the short end of the stick because they lost a member of the family to illness or death. Um, or someone needs special needs and they need taken care of so you can't work as much, or uh, you just the vicissitudes of life in terms of... And so they're like, but you have to have a society where those people's dignity is not allowed to fall beneath a certain level. There will never be an ideal society where, like, you know, you are born and you get a tattoo on your head and it's like, good, you will, be the, you will be the artist and you will be the engineer and you will be this, and everyone is equal. Like, we don't believe in that. There's no t utopia of all equality. Um, in that sense, there's no, like... Christian utopia where we're all we all share and it's all equal and everyone is equal that won't happen but there will always be some poor but we always have to serve them enough so their dignity is maintained so they may not have the nicest place to live but they have a roof over their head they have clothes and they have food and um and things like that but the children seemed very skeptical that society could be much better than it is now and they seem to be given a diet of tv shows and novels that make them very skeptical. They think that anybody who's trying to sell them something better is probably hiding something. And that just made me a little sad. Like, I know that children are probably younger people are probably more idealistic than us older people on some issues, but th that didn't seem Jewish to me. Do you know what I mean? I'm like, no, we believe like we can make it better. With my own, it, it's our two spiritualities. Sometimes I, sometimes we forget I forget. We neglect the Abrahamic side of us, um, and we're focusing on more, I say, the Jewish, the Mosaic. But I realize, you know, we're, we're all Abraham, too. I mean, it's faith in the future, and it's a faith to do what's necessary to get to that future, a future that goes beyond our lifetime. I mean, and in that sense, the, the Haftarah, the, prophet, the prophets are all about that. So thank God for the prophets. We kind of read the Torah um, on Saturday morning, and that usually, because we usually go beyond Genesis, so then we're very quickly at mosaic religion. You know, do this in the land, there's crop rotation, there's circumcision, there's Shabbat, there's treating the stranger well, I mean, all the stuff we do. But sometimes we forget there's this whole other part of our spirituality, which the prophets remind us of, which is, it's about the future. I thought one of you said, just maybe to wrap it up with one final line, that I heard in something as it was being said that, like, like you almost... Like, the way you think about almost anything is oriented by a point. And I think, like, the point, if the point is the future, it changes the way you think. 
Do you know what I mean? So like, it's almost like I said before, which is it doesn't matter about faith. Like, it doesn't matter whether you think you have faith or you don't have faith. The question is, do you have this point at which when you're, when you're, when you're planning your life and you're making your decisions not for your children, if you have children or, and, and whether, and, and the things you feel like your relationship to society, is there this point about it's going to be better? Like, we need to make it better. And even beyond my lifetime, I need to take actions now that are better for the future. Like, is that a solid, like um, uh, uh, Immanuel Kant used to call it, the, uh, whether you're navigating by the North Star. He used to say, um, it, it's like, where's your North Star that you, that, you, um, th- that you navigate by? And I think Abrahamic faith is... It's trust in the future. It's a relationship with the universe and God. But like, the future is one of those stars. And every now and then, you need Sarah to be like, um, "You're totally screwing this up. We need to do something right now." You know what I mean? Like, don't be too like look at you know we we have to we have to orient by the future, but we also have to see what's in front of us. And it's both sides of us. We have to know when to be like, um, "You're going too far in that direction." But right now, um, we need you know we need, like you're saving a lot, but right now we need to we need to spend some money on ourselves or something like that but you need both pulls but whether and and i don't know what it would be like to have a life where you didn't believe that we're trying to get to a society and in israel that changes the world i mean i guess i just totally believe that it's it's not whether i have faith in that it's like i just that's i navigate by that it's a trust i mean it it, i I couldn't do this i mean sure we could all read the pew report and say they're not gonna be any jews and um, I mean, I ran into this recently with intermarriage. I, I made a major statement in favor of rabbis conducting intermarriages in the conservative movement for people who agree to raise their children Jewish. And I'm in the great minority and because most rabbis think that can't be good for Judaism. And I'm like, really? These people I know, they're Jewish. They're married to a non-Jew. And they've agreed to raise their children Jewish. I think that's a beautiful future for Judaism. Like, those are some of the best kids I know. Like, I don't even understand what it means that I got clobbered for saying that. And it could have very well affect my, my, my future. Um, like, and I just said to people, like, I don't even consider it a debate. Like, I've, I've met these people. They're, they're great for our future. You know, I mean, they're, they're the best people. I mean, not the best people. I mean, but they're great people. Like, and you're just like, oh, that, I don't see any way that's good for our future. I'm like, but, the, so like, I'm always oriented to like, Instead of saying, oh, intermarriage, you know, this, you know, that, it's all so bad, it's all crumbling. I'm like, look, I mean, so what? If it used to be 25% of people join synagogues, and if it's 12%, then we can do amazing things with 12%. Like, why are we all supposed to be like, ooh? So, like, it's the Abrahamic side of me, which is like, fine, you know, I'm going to bind on the altar 12.5%. I'm going to bind on the altar 25%. I hope I get back 125 You know what I mean? Good enough. You know what I mean? Because remember, Isaac didn't talk to Abraham after that. Um, so, like, you know what I mean? Like, you don't get back at all, but whatever comes back, I'll take. I mean, I, I got, it's oriented to this: what's good for the future and, and, and having that faith. I mean, if you really believe that, let's just say the Nazis could take over the world, or, you know, like, if you really believe that there's no, I don't know about guarantee, but that it's, it's very possible that the future could be just ridiculously bleak then it would very much change my relationship to my own death and the death of the people I love. Um, and he teases that out. You know what I mean? Because it would change everything. I mean, how I understand what... You know, and some people might say, that's terrible, you know, the way you conduct yourself in life should be in the present moment. It's that thing. Like, I used to teach a course, it was very popular with teenagers, called um, 
living in the present moment. And uh, it was back in the late 90s, early 2000s. And a lot of people signed up for it, and we read great material. But there's a part of me that's like, it's so interesting. People want to, they want to hear about living in the present moment. But the truth is, the only way to really live authentically in the present moment is to have this connection to the future. And it's this kind of like, it is this faith point. It's just like the star that you're navigating by. Because without it, living in the present moment means something very different. If you think that we could all just blow ourselves up, or just, uh, you know, some kind of awful government could take over the world and blah blah. blah. So um, why would anything matter? Right. Why would there be meaning in the world? Why would you look for meaning? And so the truth is, it's so ironic because the real living in the present moment is actually one that is complete is completely connected to the future. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Or else it would be a form of despair. Um, we're going to finish Parshat Bo right now, which is, um, we're going to read a lot. Ready? 386. And you shall observe this Passover as an institution for all time for you and your descendants. And when you enter the land the Lord will give you, as God has promised, you shall observe this right. And when your children ask you, what do you mean by this? You shall say... It is a Passover sacrifice to the Lord because he passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt when he smote the Egyptians, but saved our houses. So this is, I believe, one of the places that's the origin that the whole Seder is about when your children ask you, what do you mean by this? Mm -hmm. So in the Talmud, there are four essential parts of the Seder. Um, One is maror, a bitter herb. One is wine, drinking a lot of wine, four cups, four full cups. One is eating matzah, and um, actually more than four, now that I think about it, but there's six. But, and then the fourth one is a child or the youngest person um, has to say, why are you doing this? And that you want it to be a genuine thing, not a ritual thing, and that's why all the rest of the Haggadah about reclining and the four questions, all of those were just various tricks you would try to do. So, like, basically, if let's say I've got Marav and Ziva there and I'm doing a Seder and we're going through it and they never say, why are you doing this? I'm doing something wrong. So, like, if I have to dress up as an Egyptian and start, I don't know, beating Lynn with, like, a a leak. This is Sephardic practice. You grab a leak and you start hitting people with the leaks. They do this at the Shamrani house, I've heard. Um, So, like, you do whatever you need to do to get a child to be like, what are you doing? And that's the origin of this. It wasn't to do ritualistic questions, which, okay, youngest child, uh, who is here? Okay, and you may conduct the full questions. So, like, I'm not so into that, because the idea was you go crazy until someone says, why are you doing this? So you, they used to do the reclining, and then they, whatever. So, like, whatever you can do to get them to be like, why are you doing this? Then you do magid. Magid is you tell the story. And it used to be all in your own words. You don't go, I'm so glad you asked. Okay, Rashi says that when it says, oh thou, oh Lord, freedom, you know, no, it was supposed to be. Then you, you're, you, you kick back. You just tell them, because we're Jews. You know, what it, yeah, and you know what a Jew is? I'll tell you what a Jew is. And you tell whatever story you want. I mean, I mean, you should say we were slaves in Egypt. You can mention the Holocaust. You can mention Yemen. You can mention uh, Ellis Island. You could go back to the medieval period. Depends how you feel. But you tell the story. Why are we Jews? And it has to include oppression to freedom. And it's all based on this line. And so, as you know, I, 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 we only had Haggadah-driven seders after the invention of the printing press. So, th- so 
Of course, right? It's an of course, but you're talking about the 16, 1700s. So when people are like, a real Seder, I think I mentioned this on Yom Kippur, <laughs> yeah. a real Seder is where you do every word. I'm like, well, then there were no real Seders before publishers started printing Haggadahs like crazy because they could sell them. Maxwell House. Right, right, exactly. And a lot, and a, it was Max, and a lot more people would buy them than would buy a Seder because people prefer Seders to prayers, to services. Anyway, we'll, we'll zoom on. Oh, then I, I told you last time, anybody remembers, two weeks ago. So if you have someone ask, why are you doing this? That's actually the evil child. Remember in the Seder, instead of like, uh, the smart child is like, when do you get to dessert? Right? When can we eat the afikoman? To him, you or whatever, I forget. Um, no, the, the smart child is, what are all the laws and statutes of the Seder? Which is not exactly why you're doing this. And then the simple ones just says, what's this? Which would be good enough. The one doesn't know how to ask. Maybe that's if you can't get anyone to say, uh, if, you, if you can't get the kids to ask, then you give up and you're like, fine, you don't know how to, how to ask. I'll tell you anyway. You know what I mean? Because like, I'm trying to figure out where it came from and, and, the, and the vitality in it that we've lost by going page to page. But then the, if the Rasha, the evil one, is the one that says, what does it mean to you? Why is that bad? Because it looks like it fulfills the commandment. Go ahead, Donna. Isn't that the whole point? To teach, to ask? Correct. It's, I mean, most people don't. And, and you nailed it, which is that the real reason, because it fulfills exactly what's going on in Parashat Bo, is what is printed in the Haggadah when they invented, whenever they invented it, this idea of four children. It's the word that comes before the sentence. And you remember what it is? For the two children who ask, the, the clever one and the simple one, it says, the, the clever one asks, the simple one asks, but the bad one says. So it says, the bad one says, what does this mean to you? If it had said the bad one asked, what does it mean to you? Then they wouldn't have been bad because it was... The, what you said, it's about questioning. Mm -hmm. So if they're mm -hmm. saying it, then it's not a question. And as you know, I think most of the satyrs today have almost turned into just saying. Mm -hmm. It's like, we'll just read it and say it. Right. Yeah. You know, if you come to my house, there, I do different kinds of satyrs, different kinds of years, but a lot, in the, my default, if I have no time, is just everyone gets a different Haggadah. You know what I mean? Let's at least all have different ones, so I can't say page 93. You know, because if I say that, you're like, there is no page have 93. Have you seen the reaction when people do that? I've been in a... Yeah. Yeah. Melton class, and I had um, uh, an Orthodox, uh, and it was like, Hashem, people just freaked out because they weren't reading exactly the same thing. They couldn't grasp the concept, I, uh, and I, and it was just hysterical. They just were violently opposed to it, and just. Went, and it's really interesting to see how satyrs go. There was someone I always wanted to do a satyr with because I thought they were like one of the coolest people I ever met. And, um, and they're Israeli, uh, Israeli-American. And I went to their house for a Seder, and I was like, this is going to be great. It's going to be so cool, you know. And they got out the Maxwell house, and they just read the whole thing in Hebrew. And I was like, um, and, and like, we were in America, and everyone like was, and I was like, um, could, could, I, could I do a little in English? And he's like, well, okay. But I mean, like, I was like, so you never know who's like going to be uncomfortable 
Because I thought this is like someone who's cool. Like I thought that's what that's what the way I've always done a seder, you know. And I was like, no, but you know. Aren't all yeah. discourses uncomfortable? But, right. I remember like my dad always did a fairly traditional seder or whatever, and and, and I didn't enjoy it. Right, and I love my dad. And I remember when he, a couple of years ago, it's probably the last time I had a seder with him because we don't see each other much. It was years ago, and I was home for I, I was out, and my brothers were like. Look, their their kids were too small to stay, right? So they're they were like toddlers, and I didn't have kids yet, and um, and my middle brother said, and I was also like I was already pushing like, can we do some can we do something different than the Haggadah? And my dad's like, oh, okay. I mean, he's not against it. He was like, it just kind of occurred to him, like you know, he was like, okay. And then my middle brother said, Dad, can we discuss an article you wrote? Because he, he wrote a couple of articles that no one ever pays attention to that were very, very scholarly. I mean, they, one of the reasons I'm not in academia is you can work four years on an article. It's too much time in my life putting anything. I'm sorry. You know what I mean? Like, too long. So, yeah. It's, um, and that was like, it was so cool. I mean, we did some of the Seder. Don't get me wrong. We did some of the stuff. But then instead of, like, as we ate and went forward, we talked about his ideas that I'm not going to, like, I can't remember what he wrote. It was the coolest thing. My brothers aren't even in the field. You know, and it was just going off topic. Like, so anyway, so that's the origin of the Seder, and I'm very much interested in creative Seders. And it's one of the things that makes me conservative. Lynn always tells me, you know, you use, you're, you're passionate about conservative Judaism, but for you, I know what it is, which is you like to go back to the, 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 the energy that energized the origins of it. And, you know, in Orthodoxy, nothing against it. They like the energy of the recent. You know, I mean, they like the energy of what's the latest kashrus thing? You know, the latest kashrus thing is microbial rennet. And they're like, that's so cool. The latest kashrus thing is Hebrew national isn't kosher enough. Or the latest, the late, you know, the latest thing is the, um, the Shabbos lamp. You know what I mean? Or like, they like the latest and that's cool. That's, that's where their energy comes from. Like, and it's, and often the latest is the most observant and the most strict. And, and they're just into that. The, the latest thing is you can't get on a Shabbos elevator because it's not, and they, they, like, they get off on that. They're like, ah, no more Shabbos elevators. You're not going to use one, Terry. Don't step on the Shabbos elevator. They're not, they're not really kosher. We just, so they're into that kind of recent thing. And what I'm interested in is where did this stuff come from? And why were people so excited about it? You know, what, what was so exciting about Abraham? You know, not, well, we know Abraham was going to sacrifice Isaac, and it was, and I'm like, what does that even mean? And what did it mean? And then I'm like, oh, my gosh, that's what it means. Not that what did Rashi say about it, because Rashi said, God never asked him to sacrifice. He said, offer him as a sacrifice. Never said sacrifice. And so never was good. I mean, like, I don't understand all that. I'm interested like, what was the energy behind it? And so I'm interested in the energy behind the Seder. And I think that, so for me, I think that is, that's what conservative Judaism is. We're supposed to be aware of the history. And we're supposed to be aware of the sources. And the most valid sources are not the most recent sources. The most valid source can be Masechet Pesachim, the, the section of the Talmud on Pesach, where they're saying, get out your Seder plate. You know what the Seder plate was? It was your meal. Um, you know those when you go to like a cafeteria and they still have the things with the sections. Here. The sections. That's what the seder plate was. There was no seder plate in the middle. It was your meal, and it had different servings on it. And they talk about the different things that are served at different rabbis camps. And they actually talk about like a TV dinner. You know, you used to have like a, what do you yeah. put them on a nightstand? They're like the seder was that everyone would have their own like little. You would sit on the floor and recline. So where's the table? 
So everyone would have a little thing and some of them would use like a little table like this. They'd have a little folding thing to put your Seder plate on and it had the different sections. And, and they were like, and they talked about the different things that different rabbis had. One, the main one was rice, which always cracks me up that people say rice isn't kosher for Passover. Because in the Talmud, you got a big servant of rice because you could eat rice on Passover. Now it's not kosher. You know, or Passover, or but, um, and they'd sit there and then they'd do this thing. They'd be on the floor. And so I love the energy of it. And um, and I think it helps us understand it more than there's the Seder plate, let us all point to the... Okay, so let's finish it up. <laughs> the people then bowed low in homage, and the Israelites went and did, and the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron in the middle of the night. Okay, we got the... Um, if Pharaoh lets them go, and the Egyptians urged the people on, impatient to have them leave the country, for they said, we're all going to die if you don't go. The people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls wrapped in their cloaks upon their shoulders. The Israelites had done bidding and borrowed from the Egyptians objects of silver and gold and clothing. And the Lord had disposed the Egyptians favorably toward the people, and they let them have their request, and thus they stripped the Egyptians. We talked about that twice, so I won't comment on it now. The Israelites journeyed from Ramses to Sukkot, about 600,000 men on foot aside from their children. Two quick comments. One is, uh, well, one quick comment, which is, remember that we live on, in Sukkot, on Sukkot. So when we talk about Sukkot, I mentioned, remember, Sukkot was the place that we lived after escaping Egypt. And that it later becomes in the Torah, a line is added that you should live in Sukkot because we lived in Sukkot when we came out of Egypt. And everyone, we're supposed to like, and so we have generations and generations and generations of Jews who think that we lived in Sukkot in the desert, which we didn't. We lived in tents. And the Torah says we lived in tents. And it becomes this kind of weird confusion, even within the Torah. It's called in, intratestamental, intratextual midrash. The Torah has midrashes. The Torah has interpretations within the Torah. So the truth is, we went and lived in Sukkot. And then the Torah provides an interpretation. Well, it's like the, it's, we kind of lived in Sukkot like shelters. And the reason it provides that interpretation is because when we lived in the land of Canaan, during the time of the holiday of Sukkot, we were supposed to live, it says that we, um, we were supposed to go to the temple. And the problem is Sukkot have is, happened at harvest time. So if you own a business, let's say you're Jerry, and, and I say, and I'm, I'm just not going to, I'm not going to say what your real business is. And I say, Jerry, uh, and Jerry says, I sell Halloween stuff. And I do all of my business between October 1st and October 31st. And I say, I'm sorry, Jerry, but there's a holiday where you have to go to the temple in Jerusalem and you have to pack up your house and pack up all your stuff and go there and live there for a week. And Jerry's like, uh, I can't do that. So imagine Jerry's business is not Halloween stuff. It's harvest. And you work 20 hours a day harvesting. You don't even come home. You actually live in the little sun shelters for taking a break in the fields, which are Sukkot. They're the little shelters you put up so that you can get out of the sun so you can drink some water and have a break during the year, during the whole year. You're going to sleep in one, right? And Jerry's like, I'm going to do that. I'm not going to the temple. Then I got a problem, which is, uh-oh, people are living in Sukkot during the holiday of Sukkot. Got it. You're doing the holiday just fine, Jerry, because you're living in Sukkot like our ancestors lived in the wilderness. And we ignored the fact that Sukkot was actually the name of a place that they stayed. Um, so does that make sense? So the Torah, like, it's the way religion works, which is, you know, that works for me. That, like, the, you, you're, you're, you're keeping Sukkot just fine. Um, 
even though that, um, and that's probably why it got the name, that festival got the name. So then they go from, so they're going to go there, 600,000 men in foot, aside from children. Most of, um, I don't, I, I always say, don't believe any of the numbers in the Torah. And people who get obsessed with those numbers, you have to go to a different rabbi if you want to talk about the numbers. Um, for me, I go with the idea that the word for LF for thousand is 600. So, uh, they went to Sukkah, that the word LF for thousand may well be something we don't understand, or let's just say it means clan. And let's say a clan was an ex- any family that lived together on a property, so that it could be anywhere from five to 20 people, you know, where you like your sister in law moves in and your children don't leave home. So, like, so it could mean that it was 600 households. Just saying. Or something else. I know, we got... and then, Oh, we got... Yep. And uh, wait, what time is it? Because I have different times everywhere. 11.56. And um, it was an era of Rav. It was a mixed multitude that went up, which is interpreted as it included Egyptians and not just Jews. And they baked on leaven cakes of dough that they had taken out of Egypt, for it was not leaven, since they had been driven out of Egypt and could not delay, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. And it had been 430 years... And that, um, that was for the Lord, a night of vigil to bring them out of the land of Egypt, the same night of the Lord, to run the vigil for all the children throughout the ages. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this is the Passover offering, nor foreigner shall eat of it. Some Orthodox still today won't have a non-Jew at their Seder, but since we no longer eat the Passover offering, it's not wrong to have a non-Jew at your Seder, and it's more Mishagas that gets spread, like again, like, oh, we can do something extra strict, isn't that cool? And I'm like, not to, not to me. Um, but any slave who's been brought may eat of it once he has been circumcised, so that at that time, even a slave could stay, even if they're a non-Jewish servant, if they'd committed themselves to the household. So by being circumcised later, what they get an earring, um, which means they basically agree to live with you forever. They become part of your household. They get their own quarters. They, be, you know, so they're allowed to have their own religion if they want. But that's a difference between someone you hire temporarily on temporary contractor. The bounder hired Labo Shalitovich. She'll be in the house. You know, okay, blah blah blah. Three ninety. The whole community. If a stranger dwells with you after the, all males must circumcised, so circumcision becomes a key thing. Um, if a, if a foreigner who dwells with you would offer the Passover to the Lord, all his males must be circumcised, then he shall be admitted to offer it, then he shall be as a citizen of the country, but no uncircumcised person may eat of it. There shall be one law for the citizen and for the stranger who dwells among you. Um, that becomes a big thing, which is that, is it just the Passover law or laws in general? That can, Do you have one set of laws for citizens and one set of laws for non-citizens? In the Roman Empire, they definitely had one set of laws for citizens. And one of them were not citizens. It was a pretty big difference. And again, when you're trying to make a better society, one good principle to operate by is you don't have one set of law for non-citizens and one set of laws for citizens. And that's been a pretty good principle for creating a better society. So that's a good example. I should do that with the kids as some example. Um, and the importance of circumcision, by the way, for the Jews who came out of Egypt is true historically. So one of the things that I once did with you is that it is possible that the Jewish people are a confederation of Hebrews who came out of Egypt and Hebrews who were always in the land of Canaan that never ended up in Egypt when Jacob's tribes went. And if that confederate, and historically there's great belief that this is true, and if that were true, the ones who came from Egypt were circumcised 
and the ones who were in the land of Canaan were not circumcised. And so that one of the things was that part of these stories about adult circumcisions and statements like this could well be that when they reunited in the land of Egypt, when there was an exodus from Egypt, and when they got to Canaan, they found some brethren. And they were like, are you guys related to us? Because they weren't sure that they were. And there was a lot of issues about the fact that are you even our relative, our long lost relatives? Because they probably had two different names for God. One of them probably had El, and one of them probably had Adonai or Hashem. And um, the one of the things that would have to be is the Egyptian one said, they made a deal. And one of the deals was circumcision. Like that is not off the table. That's and and then there were concessions that they made, mostly probably in terms of property. That the ones who came from Egypt were given less property. And it was probably where the Levites came from. That the ones who came from Egypt formed the Levite tribe. And it's kind of interesting because you know what? Maybe we should end with this because I know I want to end um, the whole thing. But uh, I'll say this. Remember when I said God gave God gave up His own son, who was tortured in Egypt, and got him back. At the end in Deuteronomy. God, when God says that, God says, my children were in Egypt, blah, 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 blah. And you, and my first, and so you Israelites are my firstborn son. But you no longer have to basically offer yourselves up to me for suffering, but you do have to offer up the Levites. So the Levites become, through an elevation offering of an inauguration, that there will be a tribe that serves me, that can't own land and has all the restrictions, but have a special level of holiness and serve the community. And the historical theory is that in the deal that was made between those Hebrews who were in Egypt and those in the land of Israel who never went to Egypt, that the deal was, okay, basically the ones who came from Egypt were in charge of religion and they became Levites. They were all Levites. So that they couldn't own land um, it's the old thing. You can't. Um, a Palestinian can't move from uh, Gaza back to Haifa and get his whole house back. They don't. They can't say, "Oh, where's my property, my ancestral home?" Ah, uh-uh. no land for you. But we'll give up ten percent tithes to support you, and you run the religion. And one thing I said is running the religion is you all have to get circumcised now, so that there are all these layers in here that are super exciting. Circumcision. Exodus, consecration, the world of the non-Jew and the Jew, and when you make it come alive historically, it has a lot to say about how we operate today.